I actually knew someone who had a voodoo catalog. Oh, really? And, <laughs> and I learned about this because he turned to me at a party out of nowhere and said, well, I just got my voodoo catalog and I've ordered my other lawyer be stupid kit. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, hello, you found us again on Boomerangs. This is Ruth. And this is Mike. Today we have a few things to discuss. The election has been decided as of Saturday at about 9.35 East Coast time, or West 9.35 West Coast time. So that happened. I have a couple of corrections I need to make from last week's pod. And we both ate takeout from Mercado, a fabulous Mexican restaurant, and watched The Queen's Gambit on Netflix? Netflix, yes. Netflix, mm -hmm. yes. The corrections that I have, one is the question of the wording in the 19th Amendment, because I said it, what the Constitution means to me. All right. Heidi Schreck said that the Constitution does not use the word woman. And you said, well, how did they word it in the 19th Amendment? Mm -hmm. And here's how they got around using the uh, word woman. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on the account of sex. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. The other correction that I need to, or update that I need to make, is that we were able to get all of the vowels of Stephen Tobolowsky's name, but I mispronounced <laughs> left, it. Oh, I thought His we left some is, consonants out. No, I thought it was Tobolowsky. It's actually Tobolowsky. T-O-B-O-L-O-W-S-K-Y. Apologies to Stephen Tobolowsky. And one okay. thing that I also forgot to mention about him is that he is a character actor of quite renown. Oh, really? He was, one of his most famous parts, at least in films, was Ned Ryerson in Groundhog Day. Oh. It's me, Ned, Ned Ryerson. He's wonderful in it. He's the kind of goofy looking guy that Bill Murray meets as he's leaving the hotel. And I think he steps into a puddle of water and then Ned Ryerson calls out to him. Oh, and that happens over and over, I guess. Over and over and over again. Oh, interesting. I'll have to watch over. for him. I never yeah. heard of him until we saw him in Malibu doing that story thing. His name didn't register with me at all until you pointed him out to me. He's one of those working actors who yes. works all the time. Anywho, I just wanted to get that in there. And now mm -hmm. we get to talk about the election. Yahoo! Election! Yay! I can't believe I'm yahooing and celebrating the fact that Democrats probably will not control the Senate. <laughs> yes. What the That's hell? That's a tough one. What and I have felt less celebratory than many of my friends over Biden's win because it is something to celebrate. But because of the Senate, the idea that we would be able to fulfill our agendas is mm -hmm. really very, mm -hmm. very limited. I believe he'll be doing a lot through executive orders, which can be yeah, which can be turned around as soon as the next president gets into office. You know, when you're in a bad relationship and you want the other person to change in certain ways that you feel if they did, the relationship would get better and you'd feel better. That's how I am with the U.S. I'm like, yeah. I'm in this relationship with this country. We're fundamentally flawed as a democracy insofar as we don't have a true democracy. We have yes. this weird system where each person's vote does not carry equal weight with each other person's vote. Yes. And so I'm thrilled that this year, the one who won the Electoral College also won the popular vote. But we still have the Senate system, which weights different yes. citizens' voices 
differently depending yes. on their geographical location. Oh, so as with a relationship, at a certain point, you get woke and you say, okay, I don't think this is going to change. So now I have to decide if this is something I want to stay being a part of, or do I want to keep trying to change it? Or do I want to go somewhere where they actually have a true democracy? Where's and that? Canada, so, any, any oh, yeah, European yeah. country, anywhere yeah. in the civilized world so-called it's a hard one and i kind of feel like i'm married to the united states for better me or too worse. I, I'm not the same thing. I'm not going to get a divorce, but I want to be more sober and realistic in accepting the limitations of this system I live under. And yes. I want to stop pretending that it's a true democracy. It's well, got it's a not, lot of- It's a republic. It's yeah, a republic. and it's we got a lot of great qualities. I don't, I don't mean to trash the whole country at all. I like the country in many ways and for many different things, but voting equality is not part of our culture. No, we have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, ostensibly, those are mm -hmm. our ideals. Mm -hmm. And I think those are very important. Yep. And I also think we have a reckoning mm -hmm. that we are coming toward, and we're going to have to decide what country we want to be. Yeah. If we want to be an autocracy, I mean, I think the two sides are cleaving mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm very, very worried about that. That's mm -hmm. really tamped down my feelings of jubilation mm. because I just see that there is a lot of passion on the other side that could be violent and destructive. I don't feel so much celebratory as just so profoundly relieved. I just yes. feel like yeah. my body is having this exhale that it hasn't been able to do for four whole years. Yeah. And I'll take that for now. I know there will be problems and difficulties and challenges and frustrations and there, there won't be tweets. I mean, there'll be tweets from Donald Trump, but they won't be in the news because no one will care anymore. I hope so that's, that's true. The tweets he's already doing about the illegitimacy of the election. Don't you feel like they're being treated like, okay, fine, let's move on. Nobody's taking them seriously. I think I they have think. to be removed from the press or moved over to the margins of the press that are willing to deal with them. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. if they end up as part of our daily life, then we really haven't done the job of removing him. From well, I mean, I, I hope they will stop appearing. The only thing that made them newsworthy is they were coming out of the White House and it was really bizarre. If they're coming out of his little bunker in Trump Tower or whatever they're going to call it now when his name gets pulled off of it, which I hope happens sooner than later, then, you know, I, I hopefully it won't get national attention. Chris Rock thinks that he's going to go to Mar-a-Lago over the holidays and just not emerge for a long time. Uh -huh. Just sort of stay there. And then yeah. moving trucks will come. And he won't be at the White House and he won't be at the White House for Biden's arrival or for the inauguration. Right. And he will just fade into the background. That would be right. a delightful scenario. Yeah. Yes. I'm not optimistic about the road ahead in terms of it being some kind of great wide highway towards national health care and things that I think are important. But I will just yeah. be happy not to be waking up to the latest Trump yes, insult. Me too. Me too. I will be happy to be seeing Kamala Harris in every depiction of her. There will be this wonderful, beautiful, intelligent woman in. Now, we say in the White House, she will work in the White House. I don't know mm -hmm. where they live. There's an official vice presidential residence. I don't know if they have to live there, but I think they have the option of living there. Okay. And it's, it's in Washington, D.C., and it's tied somehow to the Navy. Is that right? Yeah. But oh. there is a separate residence that's for the vice oh, president. Oh, okay. Okay. I've, I've read that. 
yeah, I think the Gores lived there and probably, I don't know if the Bidens lived there when he was vice president or not. Well, I hope that Jill gets to work on that bathroom soon. <laughs> I would want to make sure that no trace of Melania was left Oh, there. yes, that's right. They definitely yeah. need to clean up that bathroom after that Slovenian porn star. Oh, <laughs> God. Sorry, I don't mean to insult Slovenians. Or porn there. stars. Or porn stars, for that matter. <laughs> Yeah. We are well rid of them. Mm -hmm. Well rid of all of them. And you mm -hmm. know what? The great thing is the children are going to go with them. We're not going to have mm -hmm. Ivanka or Eric or Don Jr. or any right. of those Jared. horrible people. Yeah. Or Jared. Oh my God. How can I forget Jared? Or Stephen Miller. Oh my God. Or Stephen Miller. Or, oh my God. or Kellyanne Conway or Kaylee McEnany. No or, more. Or Bill Barr. Or Barr. Yeah. No more. Or, or Mike Pompeo. No more Fox Barbie dolls. Oh, it'll be nice. It will be very nice. Okay. Mm -hmm. I feel better now. Good. I wanted to talk about, did I say this up front? The book cast? I don't know if you did. I think we talked about it before we turned on the, the yeah. recording. I wanted to check in with you about it because it's a very intense read. And the book is Caste, C-A-S-T-E, spelled like the Eastern Indian caste system, right. which she refers to. The subtitle is The Origins of Our Discontents, and the author is Isabel Wilkerson. I'm just going to read a paragraph because mm -hmm. I think it kind of encapsulates what she says throughout the book. We think we see race when we encounter certain physical differences among people such as skin color, eye shape, and hair texture. What we actually see are the learned social meanings, the stereotypes that have been linked to those physical features by the ideology of race and the historical legacy it has left us. And what she says over and over again is that race is a construct. It is not reality. There is no such thing as race except that we give it the importance that we do. And apparently no one gives it importance the way that Europeans and Americans do. Mm -hmm. She ran into someone at a speech that she had given uh, a lecture in London and a young woman was speaking to her and said, you know, there are no blacks in Africa. Mm -hmm. And she didn't know what to say. And the woman said, there are Nigerians and Ethiopians. Right. And right. Congolese. Right. Uh, there are tribes in Africa. Right. right. But the concept of Black is only in the United States and mm -hmm. in Western European countries. It's just such an interesting way to look at it. A podcast that I listened to that was about slavery said something that has taken me until reading this book to get, which is that race didn't create slavery. Slavery created race. And that is that in order to treat an underclass the way that African-Americans were treated or Africans when they came over to America, the way that we did, we had to sublimate any idea that they were actually human. Oh, right. And the way that we identified them because they were identifiable by their skin. Mm -hmm. And that was what created race. And race also was not applicable in the same way to, say, indentured servants from Ireland or England that came over. Mm -hmm. They were considered part of the white race. And that's mm -hmm. how races began to differentiate themselves. It's a very heavy book about yeah. slavery and about how the Jim Crow South worked mm -hmm. and the idea that whites were given free reign to kill, torture, do unspeakable things mm -hmm. to a race of people because they believed that they were beneath them. Mm -hmm. 
And Mm -hmm. we talk so much about Black Lives Matter over the summer, and we kind of have gotten off of our wokeness project, but I'm trying to continue it. I feel like we're at a fever pitch now when it comes to understanding our relationship to race or caste, as she would say, in this country. Mm -hmm. And that I better try to get as much wokeness in as I possibly can Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. while I continue to make it kind of a lifelong enterprise. But well, the books and the media and everything is really focusing on this so much. Mm -hmm. And it's so important. It must be fundamental to humans to form tribes and to otherize people as non-tribe, as some kind of survival instinct. It must be naturally human to do that because, I mean, the stories of slavery and subjection go, go back, I don't know, to Bible times at least and probably earlier. Exactly. There were so it's a, in, yeah. in Roman times. But it's something, it's almost like going into therapy. It's like we need a process where we can see how our humanness has backfired on us, like the human need to otherize the other tribe yes. in order yeah. to survive the survival of our tribe. That's just a, probably a natural genetically disposed way that we are, that we're hardwired. Well, but yeah. we can learn that those forces are acting, you know, in the background. And by doing that, maybe we can learn to not have them damage us so much. Yes. What's interesting about how the African people were enslaved was that they were brought over here, whereas in Egyptian times, the Jews Mm -hmm. were part of the culture. They were indistinguishable from the Egyptians. In the way that people were enslaved here, they were treated as animals right because they were not part of any identifiable culture from here we were able to have agency over their very breath anything could be done to their bodies anything could be done to their families anything could be done to their souls there was no resistance that was possible right i don't know i don't know enough history to really speak too intelligently about it but i mean I imagine, too, Europeans, they also came over here and subjugated indigenous tribes and actually killed them. And they didn't move them to another place. They killed them right on their own They killed them right in their own backyard. Yeah. So The interesting thing about that was, and she makes this point, that the British in the West Indies observed that the tribes native to the West Indies were strong, they were organized, they were good-natured, and the Native Americans were not. They were not cooperative. They were not Uh, easily subjugated. Right. fact is that they were in their homeland and they were beset by white people, these settlers. But that because if you can take a group of people out of their homeland and put them in irons, put them in a Mm -hmm. situation where half of them will die in the journey Mm -hmm. and they have no ability to read or write or speak the language, they can be controlled in the very air that they breathe. It's so evil and sad. I mean, it's like, we'll treat you like an animal so that you will start to believe that you are an animal. And we will certainly believe that too. And it's just so So insidious. I remember someone saying a long, long time ago, years, years ago, Mm -hmm. I was listening to someone talk about the history of America. And he said... I believe that the story of America is slavery. Yeah, and, it is. I believe and that. I didn't resonate for me. I was just slavery, really? Mm-hmm. I I didn't know. I didn't yeah. know what I know now. I think but, I believe that. And I think the other the, the story within that or around that is the societal and generational trauma 
we're so American in that we, we think, well, that all happened in the past, so it should have no effect on me now. We're not very well equipped to recognize that whether we're conscious of it or not, these traumatic events of the past still live in our bodies. And we and, we have a role to play. And our role right. is that we simply don't see race. We don't believe that's that we it. see race. And that's probably why it's easy for us as white people to go, oh, I'm not racist. I, I'm, I see everybody as equal, but we don't know what's in us. We don't. We don't understand the systematic dehumanizing of certain populations. Mm That's why this book is so compelling and and deep because it just challenges every preconceived notion that I have about how I grew up, what I see, what I hear, how I live. I will probably speak more about it. I'm only 70 pages in and it's a 400 page book. So if I'm talking about it now, I'm sure I'll have more to say later. I heard a guy on NPR talking about the generational cultural trauma and the processing of it. And he said it takes eight generations to work through So we're still dealing with slavery, which goes to what you said. That's our central defining historical reality. And yet we're starting to look at it. We certainly didn't look at it in high school with American history. No, it was all didn't. glossed over. And you know, if there's one thing beyond the children in cages, mm. immigration, women's rights over their own bodies, all along with that is the idea that he was going to expunge the 1619 Project and all references to the way that slavery created the United States. Oh, right. States. And critical race Trump. studies was to not to be taught in the schools exactly. anymore. Scary, scary stuff. So, Mercado. Okay. You're in in denial about the weather again. I can see you're wearing shorts. Oh, yes. I like being around the house in shorts. I don't know what that's all about. It's less fabric enveloping me. It feels (laughs) good. I feel a little uh, claustrophobic with fabric all over my body. I'm becoming a nudist at this late, unfortunate stage in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I always say I hope to get into a relationship before everything falls. Anyway, Mercado. Mercado Mexican restaurant on, what is it, on 3rd Street? It's on 3rd Street near Fairfax, cut a corner from the Farmer's Market. Okay. It's also in Hollywood and in Santa oh, Monica. Have, oh, really? They have a few of them. They do. And they are currently having patio dining, so mm-hmm. it's possible to eat there. But mm-hmm. we did a pickup. I picked up the food. A socially and distanced takeout. A socially distanced takeout. It was a little on the chilly side when I got it back to your place. Oh yeah, so that's not their fault. Heated it up. No, I could feel the heat emanating from it when they first, mm. when I first put it in the car. We both had the, I guess this wasn't the best thing for the pod so that we could have tasted oh, different dishes. Yes. Yeah, but we'll do that next time. We had the same um, thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll do that next review. But we both had the mole enchiladas. Chicken enchiladas oh. with mole sauce. Oh, what is it about it? Is it the mole that's so good? I think so. And all the textures are good too. The meat is tender and the tortillas, they're not mushy. They're kind of, yes. they have texture to them. The sauce is delicious. They're cheesy, but they're not over cheesy the way a lot of Mexican food feels like it is yes. to me anyway. That's right. Um, and the mole sauce is subtle. This yes. mole sauce almost tasted light. It's full of flavor, but it's not. Yes, that's what I was going to say. They're, they're mm-hmm. lighter than normal enchiladas. They're not haute cuisine either. They do yeah. strike a good balance at restaurant in that it's gourmet flavoring and the tastes are subtle and good. And it's not overpriced the way that some mm-hmm. places are. I think it's, mm-hmm. it's very fair pricing for the quality. Our enchiladas were, I think, $22. Yeah. Yeah. Tip them and... And the side was, dishes uh, are good too. There's like a corn oh, yeah. salsa. They are. 
I remember too going in person. I remember they had great cocktails. I think I had like a ginger. I forget what flavor, a ginger margarita or some kind of margarita that was awesome. They have all kinds of margaritas there. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's really great. And the space in, in the Fairfax restaurant is beautiful. It's, mm-hmm. it's a huge window in front. The whole place feels right. very airy. And right. I hope they survive. Yeah, it's, I hope so too. On to our viewing choice, which was all right. the Queen's Gambit. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed, but I was falling asleep during most of the show. <laughs> I just couldn't find, maybe, maybe that margarita maybe the mole. was <laughs> particularly in strong, but I could not focus. I really don't remember what happened. Oh, so you're going to have to talk about it. Well, episode one, I remember it pretty clearly. The story is about a young girl, an orphan, who is turns out to be a, a rain man as far as chess goes. And so she just takes to it. She learns it from a janitor at her orphanage, and she just takes to it immediately. And she can play she can play tournament-level chess in a very short amount of time. She's like a genius. So the first episode that we watched, well, maybe one of the reasons she fell asleep was, I think it's an exposition episode. It's just there to lay out her childhood experience in this orphanage. Her parents killed when she was very young uh, in a car accident and she goes to this orphanage. I guess they felt they needed to take the time to show us her process of learning how the game works. And is set in England, isn't it? No, no. It's in the U.S. And I watched episode two today and I learned that they're actually in Kentucky. Clearly, I was not awake for this at Mm. all. I do remember... She had a best friend. The girl was black, I think. Yeah, Jolene. Yes. It was a very slow-moving episode, and I was kind of disappointed because everyone I talked to who's watching this thing is just ecstatic about how good it is. I know. Um, but it was very slow going, but I'm just, I'm going to give it a few more watches. And did you feel that the second episode was better paced? It was better paced, but still a little on the slow side. But yeah, there was one little flash when I almost want to go back and just search for it, where she's in a chess tournament, but she's gotten nervous and she goes to the bathroom to calm down. And this flash of self-hatred comes out of her as she looks at herself in the mirror, almost like Reagan in The Exorcist where she yells at herself and tells her how tells herself how ugly she is. So I'm hoping that maybe that's going to be a part of her character is this inner mean voice that inner she's demon. Mm-hmm. So it does it becomes more of a story on competition. All right. And, and by virtue of that it is a little more compelling. Well, I am impressed that you gave up a night of watching The Killing to watch The Queen's Gambit. Well, I watched an episode of The Killing afterwards. Oh, oh, all right. (laughs) I will never sacrifice my Danish crime series. That's good to know. Well, it's been swell. Yes. So long, (laughs) farewell. I'll be the same. So long, farewell. Okay. Good night. Thanks. (laughs) Bye, Boomers. We'll talk to you in a week. Talk to you in a week. Bye-bye.